Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am in New York City, where tomorrow night we will be hosting the Deep State Victory Party a party to watch the results of the election and uh, see what see what's going on and comment on it. We'll have Rosa will be there and Max will be there, Max Boot, and we'll have some comedians. Um, and I'm really looking forward to it. But since I don't really know what's going to happen, I thought we should get the whole gang together here and have a bit of a discussion about the uh, uh, the events that are of tomorrow and what they're likely to mean. And so joining me. Uh, is Rosa, who I think right at the moment uh, is in West Point or in that part of the world. Is that correct, I am. Rosa? I am, David. Yes, I'm at the Modern War Institute's annual conference. Where the you Mod- are a fellow, right? I am, yes. She, she's a fellow of the Modern War Institute. They're having their conference. In Washington, D.C., uh, we have Ed Luce holding down the fort. It's the rest of us have escaped. Uh, and in London, England, we have Corey Shockey, where things have winter has come, as they say on on Game of Thrones. Hmm. Uh, it's and, freezing and, cold here. And Corey is a fellow of the Ancient War Institute. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> May change how we fight, not what we fight for. Yep. Yep. Um, no, she's got a whole new p- uh, paper coming out on catapult theory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's titled Feche la vache. <laughs> M- mutually assured futility. Nice. Very okay, nice. seriously, does nobody get um, the Monty Python Life of Brian joke? Come I on. Got, I not only got the Monty Python joke, but for those of you who may follow me on Twitter, and I apologize for those of, to those of you do, um, this weekend I was at a hotel in Los Angeles, and in walks this very distinguished-looking gentleman, and uh, he he goes up to the millennials that are manning the the hostess station, and they say, "Do you have a reservation, sir? Empty restaurant?" Uh, and he says, "No. Do I need one?" And then. They say, well, what's your name? And he says, please. And and they have no <laughs> idea who he is. And so then they said, could you spell that? And he's like, C-L-E-E-S-E. <laughs> and it was this perfect moment of this kind of anger, condescension, hurt, <laughs> It was everything you've ever seen in every Monty Python Faulty Towers. <laughs> I'm thinking Fish Called Wanda has got that perfect. Yeah, Fish Called Wanda, the whole thing. And I just felt terrible. I wanted to go up to him and say, I know. I know who you are. <laughs> so was this man about five foot six, five foot seven? 
No, not at all. He was about- <laughs> just, just checking you have the right job, please. It was a yeah. trick question. Oh, I see. Um, no, he was he was John Cleese from head to toe, although in a nod to California, he was not wearing socks, I noticed. I thought that was kind of adapting. Very edgy of him, right? Very edgy. <laughs> Very edgy. So uh, I appreciated your reference, Corey. So guys, you know, tomorrow is the day everybody's been waiting for, or some people. After two years of Donald Trump, two years after his election, 10 years to the day today since Barack Obama was elected, um, the Americans are going to go to the polls and either say, yeah, we really meant what we said in 2016, or whoops, let's fix that, or something in between. I, David, so- I, think, I, think, I think, though, that it's a mistake to characterize the election that way because we are looking, the, the, you know, the, the pres- Trump is not, in fact, on the ticket. And a lot of Americans vote for members of the House of Representatives in particular and senators to a slightly lesser extent based on local considerations rather than on national considerations. And I, I think that I, 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 the polls suggest that there is a likelihood that Democrats will retake the House. Um, and of the Democrats who, who go and vote, many of them will be voting thinking in the back of their mind, and I'm repudiating Donald Trump while I'm at it, but I don't think that all voters are necessarily going to be thinking about that, and I don't think that the result of the election, one way or the other, can be read entirely as a referendum on Trump as opposed to, you know, the the sum total of all the many local races and all the many local reasons that people are voting one way or the other. Well, I certainly will agree with you if if the Republicans do well. On the other hand, <laughs> um, uh, no, no, there is some thought out there, Ed, that um, because of the nature of this election, because of the turnout we're already seeing, um, because of the fact that Trump has made himself synonymous with the GOP and been the, the primary campaigner, that the House elections in particular have a more national dimension to them than they usually do. Um, but perhaps you could pick up on something Rosa said and take it on a little bit, and then we'll go to Corey and sort of get your your, your views of this as we come into it. I think there's some truth in that. And he's obviously been on the campaign trail more um, in a more frenzied uh, way than um, most incumbent presidents. Um, uh, though that said, the itinerary has been extraordinary. He's been sticking to places that he won, partly because, you know, Republicans in more swing suburban areas just won't have him. You know, he's he's extremely positive in uh, areas that are pro-Trump and is an extremely negative factor in, uh, everywhere else. So this is an odd election and history isn't a brilliant guide because I think what you're seeing, normally you have one wave and it's going from one direction to the other. It's, you know, Dems in in, in 26 and um, Republicans in 2010. Um, this time you've, you've arguably got two waves. You've got a conservative base wave and you've got a liberal base wave. And then as Rosa said, all the usual sort of local particular factors. Um, and that makes it extremely hard to predict. But once we've seen the results um, on Tuesday night, or, you know, perhaps six weeks afterwards, if it's really close and we've got recounts everywhere, 
um, we will we will acquire wonderful hindsight about how symmetrical and national the message was. Um, yeah, well, I'm looking forward to the hindsight. I always do that better than the foresight. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Corey, Corey, as you sit there comfortably, well, probably uncomfortably, given that most British buildings still lack heat. <laughs> um, I should add here that uh, um, Corey, you know, is in the midst of the 5th of November bonfire night, that wonderful festive occasion where we celebrate the burning of, of Catholics. Um, and it, must, it probably sounds like Beirut in London right now with all the fireworks going off. Guy Fox Day really is a light up the night sky day here. And so the fact that I am recording this podcast with you guys should be taken as a measure of my devotion, not just to you, but to the deep state radio nerds who warm my nerdy heart. Well, would, would you would like to be out there blowing something up? Of course I would. <laughs> what kind of question is that? Well, you could you could quote us poet. Isn't there like remember remember the fifth of November, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, I saw I saw the movie V. I know what goes on in. <laughs> I think they're burning remainers. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um. Um. So, 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 what's your perspective from way over there, Corey? Uh, so, I have a couple of reactions. Uh, one is that uh, it's interesting. I didn't realize until Ed said it that the president is just campaigning in places that he won by large margins, which suggests to me one of two things. Uh, thing one, um, the president realizes turnout of his most ardent supporters is is the essential factor for him, which I think is probably very bad strategy if he's going to places that he won by large margins. Or two, um, the president has no strategy at all, and this is narcissistic indulgence, that is, you know, being president isn't fun and it's hard. And so campaign rallies are what the staff likes him doing and he likes doing. And therefore, um, he's going on lots of campaigning to try and look like he's doing something. Oh, come uh, on. How likely is it that the president has no strategy and is just going on a narcissistic? <laughs> I realize that's a stretch. <laughs> but, you know, Corey, one of the things that I was thinking, just was sort of watching all of this, uh, but I was thinking about it sort of from your, your perspective as well, is it's, the oldest saw in the book about Amer U.S. elections is foreign policy has nothing to do with these elections. Americans aren't interested in it, and uh, they just they just you know care about main street issues, kitchen table issues, and so forth. And yet, the president has made relations with Central America, <laughs> immigration policy, um, and and inadvertently relations with Saudi Arabia, central to this this election. Kind of, kind of surprising, yeah. Well, that doesn't have anything to do with foreign policy because if the president um, had the kind of positive foreign relations with America's immediate neighbors that 
uh, every previous American president since Franklin Roosevelt has had, uh, the Mexicans would be a lot more helpful in managing their southern border in this crisis. That's how President Obama managed uh, the last time there were uh, there was a large caravan of immigration coming. But what incentive has have the Mexicans to help the American government of President Trump after how disgraceful he has behaved towards our southern neighbors? So there are foreign policy consequences to the president's um, choices. But that was a very long windup to say uh, this is all about domestic policy, the ugly racist appeal of sending active duty military in large numbers to the southern border to, you know, protect us against this onslaught of, of children is very much race baiting appealing to his base, which leads me to uh, the second thing I observe about the election, which is that um, what this election feels like to me is whether the Republican Party is President Trump's party. My Democratic friends and colleagues seem very motivated to vote um, in order to make clear that this administration isn't the America they want the world to see. And I think the same question poses itself for Republicans, because there are a lot of my fellow conservatives who want to say, but Neil Gorsuch. Um, and, and the question is, is that really the benefit you are willing to pay this price for of America in the world? So there are domestic and foreign policy trade-offs at play, I think. Well, also, there's some national security ones, uh, Rosa, as Corey just mentioned. Um, the, the use of the military at the center of the home stretch of this election uh, poses a question in the minds of many uh, deep state nerds, I'm sure, which is how did everything become war and the military become everything? Yeah, Bravo. that's a great question. Bravo. You should totally write a book about that. Nice phrasing. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you, David. Um, no, I, I mean, the look, I want to echo what Corey just said and, and also thank Corey once again for being a, a conservative with a conscience and a conscience and courage, conscience and a spine. Uh, and the combination of those things is unfortunately quite rare these days. Um, it, it's it is morally disgusting to me to be, to see the military being used as a political prop uh, in a racist xenophobic campaign in this matter. It's it's just stomach churning, um, and I it, it does, you know, our our friend of the deep state Kelly Magnuson uh, recently posted an article saying, you know, Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, uh, maybe you need to speak out or resign over this one. And and I, I have to admit, I'm, I'm a big fan of Secretary Mattis overall, but um, this is pretty appalling. Um, I, and I, I've been I've been heartened to see how many senior retired military leaders, including some who have been very cautious, like General Dempsey, about about uh, wading into politics because they're coming out and saying this, there's no justification for this. Um, it's, it's, it's unsurprising. I think it's of a piece, not only with, uh, the American 
increasing American tendency to assume that any problem is one the military should solve. But it's, I think, far more than that, frankly. I, I think that this is much more a product just of, of Trump's uh, posturing and, and theatrics than of any, any broader phenomena. Uh, but it does, as you suggested, David, it does create real trade-offs. It's, it, this is not costless. Uh, sending up to potentially, Trump is now talking about, what, 15,000 troops to the border. Uh, it costs money to move those people. You know, it costs money to plunk them down where they're not doing anything. It means that they're not doing the various other things that they could be doing while they're sitting there doing nothing. And we sure hope they're doing nothing and not, as President Trump appears to hope, uh, shooting down uh, any kid who lobs a rock at them. Uh, I, and I sincerely hope that, uh, unlike the commander-in-chief, um, commanders at the ground level are, are uh, sensible enough uh, to be saying, no, no, guys, we're not doing that. Um, but but it's, it's, it's completely shameful. It's a wasteful political partisan use of the military. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's embarrassing that we are doing this. Yeah, it's deeply embarrassing. And, you know, you have estimates that just between now and the end of the year, uh, the deployment could cost as much as 100 to 200 million dollars. Yeah, 220 million dollars. And, uh, you know, it's it's compounded somewhat by the fact that you then end up with photo ops of um, U.S. military personnel in battle armor deploying barbed wire. I mean, not that there is any threat, you know, within a thousand miles of them, but, you know, it's it's to create this kind of fear mongering. And, you know, Ed, despite um, the great, you know, turn of phrase that I used when I posed the question to Rosa, you know, as she frames it, it, you know, this election, particularly the push that Trump made, even though he was getting a lot of people, you know, like Paul Ryan saying, focus on, 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 on the economy. It's sort of like how everything became racism and racism became everything. I mean, this the Republican Party is doubled down, tripled down, and quadrupled down on racism at the border, racism and races against uh, black uh, politicians, whether in Florida or in Georgia, um, uh, you know, racist policies everywhere. It's, 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 it's as nauseating as Rosa says, no? It, it is, and, and I do think... Um, that this is a dress rehearsal for for 2020. Uh, you know, we've got the, the, the sort of most optimal economy on which the president could be running this, what he hopes will be, if it goes the right way, a referendum on him. Um, and there's occasional dutiful mentions of the unemployment rate and growth in Q3, et cetera. But basically, he's going for uh, culture wars uh, or race, as you, um, I think, more accurately put it. Um, so what's it going to be like in 2020 when the economy will most definitely have slowed um, and when it will, there will be far fewer bragging rights? And where, you know, just on the sort of cold numbers, the forgotten American, you know, will be even more forgotten. Um, this is definitely a dress rehearsal for that. And Trump is all about the base. Um, and uh, and he's going to be even more about the base in 2020. I do think, though, the degree to which, you know, 
people like Paul Ryan and Jeff Flake sort of limply, impotently, sort of gently tweet, or Marco Rubio, you know, that this isn't appropriate and maybe the military and blah, 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 or the 14th Amendment sacrosanct, and then sort of come and then withdraw at the first sort of bearing of Trump's fangs is an indication that this party is entirely in his pocket. It's gone. You know, I mean, it, it is futile to hope that resistance is going to come from within the Republican Party. There's only one source, and that's the electorate. They have to repudiate him. Um, final point, and I think I've made it before, but, you know, if that movie um, during the Lewinsky scandals, um, Wag the Dog, you know, seemed fantastical then, you know, what, what could be more fantastical than claiming there's an invasion of uh, uh, three and a half thousand, you know, um, uh, men, women, and children um, who are still 900 miles away, who are estimated to have fallen to, you know, 1,500 or so by the time they get here in December, um, to have not just 15,000 uh, soldiers diverted to the border, but another 16,700 armed um, uh, uh, Customs and Border Enforcement um, uh, officers on the border um, and talk of it as an invasion and have Fox News talk of it, them bringing disease across the border. This is, I share Rose's moral repugnance at this. It, 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 and unfortunately, the Republican Party, if it does, doesn't have the guts to echo that. Corey, can can I? Oh, sorry, David. Can I before you just leave this subject? Can I can I mention um, one uh, somewhat related thing? I'm I'm here at here at this West Point conference, uh, and one of the speakers uh, earlier today, Clint Watts, who is at the Foreign Policy Research Institute uh, and does a lot of stuff for I think MSNBC, um, said something that was that was really quite chilling uh, about um, uh, the so. Social media disinformation campaigns deliberately targeting military personnel, uh, and, and he was he was talking about he he closely monitors um, uh, sort of both external and in, internal uh, social media disinformation campaigns, uh, and seeing a recent substantial uptick in disinformation sort of targeting military personnel and specifically geared towards. Uh, Essentially, sowing division within the military, both you know between officers and enlisted troops, between troops of different ethnicities and political backgrounds, and so forth. Um, you know, essentially along the uh, sort of Trump xenophobic white nationalist, uh, you can't trust those other people because they're going to take away your stuff if you're a white guy. Um, and that was really quite chilling, and it, it sort of accords with my own kind of vague, intuitive sense of, of what's happening uh, as a non-expert who's not doing, not specifically tracking this. Um, it was really chilling to hear him say that this is happening in a, in a deliberate and targeted way. We've talked at, in other podcasts about civil-military relations, and, and Corey is, uh, in particular, has been a very strong voice uh, talking about the, the importance of maintaining um, a professionalized, nonpartisan military, um, and I, I think that the notion that the uh, the the various bad guys, some some external, you know, Russian trolls and so forth, and some of them internal bad guys associated with white nationalist groups, et cetera, the fact that they are deliberately taking aim at the military as an institution, 
uh, and seeking to spread that kind of disinformation within the military when it comes to talking about the military's role, the military's role in stopping uh, unlawful immigration, et cetera, it, it was really quite uh, uh, chilling to hear. Well, you know, I was going to actually turn to Corey because she does talk so often so eloquently and thoughtfully about uh, civilian military relations and, and sort of say, in some ways, this is a, 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 a different kind of a low point uh, in, in the way that the, 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 the military is being used as a prop. Uh, uh, and and uh, it's the kind of thing that suggests to me a slippery slope, but since you're a scholar of this, Corey, I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Well, there's a really good piece by Alice Hunt Friend in the Monkey Cage blog in the Washington Post that uh, lays out what is new and different about this border deployment, because President Trump's not the first president who has sent troops to the border. Um, what that I think is not particularly problematic. It's also not particularly problematic that their responsibilities are being restricted to just uh, to support and logistics. So they are not going to be arresting people. They're not going to be interviewing people. They can't serve as border patrol agents because of the Posse Comitatus law. I'd also really strongly suggest that people on Twitter uh, look at Lindsay Cohn's feed because she has a very nice history of posse comitatus and a nice reminder that all of us are very happy now not to have the military engaged in domestic policing functions, but it, the act itself has the terrible history of having been used to enforce Jim Crow laws in the South or to keep the military from preventing Jim Crow laws from taking hold in the South. Uh, on the current uh, deployments. I, I absolutely share the view that this is a reckless political stunt by the president that puts the military in a terrible civil military position and that it shouldn't have been done. Uh, the president is, however, the commander in chief. And what he is asking is not unlawful of the military to do. The president's Article II powers are extraordinarily expansive. Um, and, and so I, I don't actually think I agree with our good friend, Kelly Magsiman, whose piece I also read with great admiration, that the secretary should resign rather than do this, uh, because what the president is asking him to do is actually lawful. Um, but, but, it's, but it's a very close call. Um, and for me, the main point is that I, I think it is terrible for the military to be even seen in so politicized a way. And I, I do worry that it is politicizing the rank and file itself. The, the thing that makes me more nervous than anything else, uh, that, um, that the Defense Department has permitted is the president to give campaign-style rally speeches to military audiences. That makes me, that really creeps me out. Um, and that the leadership of the Pentagon permits that. 
uh, bothers me more deeply than anything else. Um, but it sounds like Rosa and I disagree on this, so I'd love to, to, to discuss it further. I, yeah. I was going to go to Ed with something, but Rosa, you sound like you wanted well, to. Well, just briefly, um, I, you know, lawful does not strike me as the final answer to anything. I mean, lots of things are lawful that are morally disgusting. Um, and lots of things are lawful in a sort of narrow sense that are, you know, fundamentally destructive of the uh, constitutional order. You know, so 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 I, I don't. I, I mean, ab absolutely, any any military commander or military uh, any member of the military at any level you know, has to constantly be asking all kinds of difficult decisions. You're, you're not going to agree with everything. Uh, if you're at a high level, you, you have to weigh your ability to have an impact on decisions uh, in a positive way, which you won't have if you're not in the military, with, with the uh, enabling and, and complicity if you go along with horrific decisions. Um, to me, this one just crossed the line. I think it's, 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 a, it's a tough line. Uh, I don't think anything for me has completely crossed it before, but but this one, to me, really, really did. Um, I, I think, you know, I was sort of thinking, so what's the right thing for military people to say, whether they, uh, whether they leave or whether they stay? And I think that a good example is the uh, comments of uh, several of the service chiefs after the Charlottesville uh, unite the right rally, which, you know, led to, uh, led to death, uh, not to mention, you know, a, a sort of stunning display of racist, uh, racist violence, um, that we had several service chiefs at a moment when president Trump was saying, Oh, there are, you know, some good people there and, you know, bad actors on all sides, uh, come out and say very clearly, no, this is not okay. Um, it's not acceptable in this country. It's not acceptable in this military. Don't act that way. Uh, it's, you know, I condemn this. Um, you know, that that's not a partisan statement. The, 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 those are statements that speak to American values. And, and I think that this is another time when both retired and active duty personnel without, you know, whether, even if they choose to stay in, even if they choose to obey the order, that there are important statements that they can make about what it means to be American uh, that do not cross the line into partisan politics, but that really need to be made right now. But there is also no way that those will not be seen in a partisan light. That being um, as it may, right? I mean, at some yeah, point, because, yeah. because silence will also be seen in a partisan light, right? I mean, there's, there's, I mean, I don't think that's true for active duty military folks. I, um, I think they're, they're, when, when you're being used as a political prop and it is, it is both. Okay, but they're used as political will, props all the time by elected sure, leaders of both parties. But this one, I agree, tears up my heart more yeah. than others, but. But again, I mean, my, my point is just that there's no there's no there there isn't necessarily a neutral stance here. You know, when 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 this particular military deployment, we when we know it is being used in order to have a, the effect of fomenting, you know, discord and racist violence, when we know that to be the case, you know, it's not it's not a hypothesis. We know that that is what is happening. 
then remaining silent in the face of it becomes a form of complicity. And I, I, you know, I think that there's just no way around it. It's a, and it's a, it's a wrenching. I, I think I, if we I, have left our decision. military no place to be neutral in high stakes political ventures, then that too is a great danger to civil military relations. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, it, it is. Can I just say in closing on this that there's a terrific debate between Paul Yingling and my former student Walter Haynes going on on task and purpose on what military active duty military people ought to think about and how to prepare themselves for being put in so highly politicized a uh, position. And it's a great education for anyone who cares about these issues. Well, I also think, you know, one of the reasons that we're talking about it, and one, it's not really what I thought we would end up talking about here today, but it, but it's an important subject because there is a kind of a slippery slope. It can happen more often. An empowered or a frightened President Trump could turn uh, to the military as he has periodically to the law enforcement community uh, to uh, uh, use as political props to... Uh, to to use in this kind of campaign rally way that Corey was referring to, and that uh, uh, you could anticipate more of it, you know. And for those of us who follow foreign policy, in the past twenty four hours, Yair Bolsonaro in Brazil has talked about expanding the role of the military in Brazil and in 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 the in, the enforcement of his goals in terms of civil society in that country and. And and so you you do have to be concerned about that. And then, of course, there is the finally the point that I think is implicit in what Rosa was saying, um, that by following through on an order like this, even if it's lawful, you create the impression that the risk that the president describes is actually real. Um, and. Again, the military has to, is there to follow orders, but um, in so doing, um, they they do serve this kind of uh, not just racist agenda, but frankly, an anti-national security agenda because this is not a real threat. In any event, we've only we've only got about 10, 10 15 minutes here, and what I'd really like to do, um, at, you know, as we sort of head into the home stretch, is 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 turn to each of you and ask, what will you be looking for in the election? You personally, what is, what do you, what do you think is going to be important? What are the, 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 the races that you're looking for? What are the results that you're looking for? And I, and I raise it as a, as a kind of an aid to our beloved deep state radio nerds, you know, to sort of say what, you know, you're going to hear thousands of stories about this and there's going to be an avalanche of information what's what's important in this particularly what may be important that is not um not front and center in the story and let me turn with turn to you ed well uh, part of the answer to that of course depends on not just the overall result but individual results so if um if some of the more informal sort of early voting numbers um, you know, in Texas, um, are correct that there has been a surge and there's been a lot of women and a lot of younger people voting there. And Beto O'Rourke actually pulls off a victory and defeats Ted Cruz. Um, then that has the potential, sort of, regardless of the macro results, to swamp Tuesday night. 
if, if it did happen in the still unlikely event, but quite possible event O'Rourke won because he would then instantly become the 2020 front runner and the way in which he campaigned, which was, you know, unapologetically progressive, but not not particularly personal, um, you know, quite optimistic. Um, I think would then you know, become the new benchmark for you know how the Demo- the direction in which the Democratic Party is going. Equally, you know, individual results. Uh, the defeat of Steve King um, in Iowa, I think, would send a, a very strong message that you know um, neo Nazis um, or sympathy for neo Nazis and the Austrian far right and Orbán, you know, has its limits. And that could be a positive, um, a positive event. Again, looking at sort of individual silver lining stories, um, Gillum in, in, in Florida and the gubernatorial race in Georgia. I mean, if you get black governors south of the Mason-Dixon line and a female black governor, a, a pretty dramatic, a pretty dramatic signal. Um, so uh, those would be the sort of positive um, uh, potential stories. There are many others, but those would be the ones that leapt out at me. But ultimately, as we were discussing earlier, I do see this as, in many ways, Trump's dry run for 2020. And I don't think you know we should overinterpret the uh, overall results um, tomorrow night. If the Democrats, as I expect, regain the House, um, that does not in any way um, imply that that's it. The American people tried Trump and they've now repudiated um, him. And early celebrations would be uh, would be inappropriate and, and I think reckless. Um, Trump is is quite capable of being reelected in 2020. And the Democrats have yet to show that they've got to grips with how to defeat him. Um, and so sort of as a, as a larger picture, regardless of those potentially very positive individual stories, that's my obsession. There's nothing more important than what happens in 2020. Corey. I agree with everything that Ed just said. I would add to the list of races to watch. Um, wow, do I really, really hope that uh, Republican Representative Dana Rohrbach gets defeated by Democrat Harley Ruda. Because if there is one person who who exemplifies what should not be in Congress and what we ought not to be standing for, it's Putin's favorite congressman. There's so many choices on that front, though. There's Dana Rohrabacher, there's Steve King, you know, the the most racist, potentially, congressman. There's Devin Nunez, who's got to be the stupidest human being who actually has a job. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, I want all three of those gone. Yes, yeah. I, I would sure like to see uh, Abby Spanberger in Virginia's seventh district to defeat the appropriately named David Bratt. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very, very true. He is—he's—he's he's a brat and a prat. Um, and a prat, speaking directly. A, a, a prat and a twat. <laughs> And a twat, and a twat. No, a pr- prat might be an anglicism, like shirty. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed it is. Um, but, you know, dr- as you direct your comments to Corey, who's gradually adopting um, UK English, and, 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 you know, every do you find yourself slipping in to, to Britishisms, Corey? No, no, I really don't. We're all glad to hear that. But you will. 
Give it time. You <laughs> um, absolutely will. Um, well, you know that's you know that's where we are. That's what you guys are watching for, and I think those are all real things. The 2020 stories, as Ed suggests, will start at 8 a.m. Wednesday morning um, because I I do think there is uh, whatever may happen. Uh, uh, you know. Uh, still a, a better than likely possibility that Trump could be reelected simply because for 18 months the Democrats will not have a candidate to share the stage with him and he will have it all to himself and he has a message and he has the ability to attract the spotlight and the Democrats do not have a message and there are 30 some odd candidates right now and there are divisions that are likely to come. You know, you could have a bunch of young Democrats win this um, and say, no, we don't want to go along with Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House. Uh, you could have uh, other kinds of progressive versus moderate tensions within the Democratic Party. All of those are things that would make it easier for Trump to use the next 18 months to build the kind of advantage that will be very hard for the Democrats to overcome. So while what's happening tomorrow is a very big deal, uh, and I do think it has some foreign policy consequences, by the way. The Democrats win the House. Uh, I think that will probably be one of the um, best things that could happen to the people of Yemen, because I think the Democrats and some here, Republicans here. will put a lot of pressure on 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 this administration and on uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis and others uh, to, to, to bring that horrific conflict to an end. Uh, 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 that's, I sort of see the, the, the handwriting on the wall on that one. Uh, and there may be other such areas. Um, in any event, guys, we will, you know, Rosa, I will see you tomorrow night as we talk about it. Uh, and we're going to do another podcast on Wednesday to follow up and to to try to 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 interpret this in some kind of constructive way. And of course, we'll be back every week. and And now we have DeepStateRadioNetwork.com, and there's all sorts of stories and other kinds of pod things on there. And uh, and um, you know, I hope that you'll you'll go there and you'll follow along um, as we are uh, every week better able to provide. New perspectives. I don't know if anybody saw Deep Tech, which was the brainchild of one of our our our, our editors to to go and sort of pull stories each week that had a tech subtext, and and that's now a, a weekly email push like the 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 daily the daily briefs that we're doing. So um, there's a lot there, and we're going to cover it because this is a very very big deal, uh, and I think we framed it extremely well because I can't think of three smarter. Uh, or more charming uh, uh, people than Rosa and Corey and Ed, despite Ed's maltreatment of his pets, which... <laughs> Can I make one closing comment? Well, yes. Which is on. that every single Deep State Radio nerd, please go vote. Really matters. Really matters for keeping our republic healthy, no matter who you vote for. But this is a really important election, and your vote's going to matter. Is that, you know what Andy Borowitz has just written, that there's record levels of early drinking this time. 
<laughs> Which is not inconsistent with voting on the day. Yeah, and by the way, uh, Deep State nerds, it is not mutually exclusive. You can vote and then drink, but don't <laughs> drink and then vote. That's, you know, frowned upon. Uh, so get out there. Although definitely. your choices will definitely seem better and more attractive if you drink and then vote. Oh, yeah. I'm going to vote for that charming Ted Cruz. <laughs> well, I don't drink too much. <laughs> too much. Come on, David. There is no amount of drunk you could get that would actually get you to Yeah, no, no yeah, no. If you're, if you're drunk Ted enough Cruz to go, good. that Devin Nunez, that is a smart guy. <laughs> Have somebody drive you to your polling place. You're not sober enough to drive. All right, folks. Uh, good luck. Vote. Um, and we'll be with you right after Election Day. Thank you very, very much. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.